0: Pastor Xavier Reece says, "Leaning on your own understanding just might be a setup for a fall." David made a name for himself,
1: and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. He knew how to fight the battles. He depended on God for all of this. It was a God who made him great. Our battles are no different in the spirit, are they? And when we're victorious, we know it's because we're yielding and obeying to God. And when we're wiped out, it's because we think we can do it on our own. Let him who thinks he stands take heed fall. Paul
0: says. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Humble, wise, faithful, and compassionate, these are qualities you'd expect to find in God's choice for king of the nation of Israel. Never someone self-centered and short-sighted, right? Well, as Pastor Xavier continues his look at David's rise to the throne, all the above descriptions are in fact pretty much how David is portrayed for us in the pages of Scripture. And so once again, it's both the good and bad examples that we draw simple truths to learn from. And today's study is no exception. Let's listen.
1: We begin our study of David focusing on the man anointed king. Uh, We stated that this last category allows us to see David from three perspectives. David's rise to the throne, and we saw that in chapter 1 through 6. Then there's David's rule on the throne, chapter 7 through 14. And then David's flight and from and return to the throne in chapter 15 through 24. Now we looked at the first of the three in our last study. David's rise to the throne, which revealed David's character, David's covenant, and David's coronation. Now we want to look at David's rule on the throne, which is characterized by three things. First, David's rule was characterized by humble wisdom. Humble wisdom. And we're going to find that in chapter 7 and 8. Secondly, David's rule was characterized by faithful compassion, chapter 9 through 10. And then David's rule was characterized by self-centered Short-sightedness, chapter 11 through 14. So let's begin with David's rule was characterized by humble wisdom, chapter 7 and 8. Notice first, as we come to chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, David was desiring to build God a house. In verse 1, David had come to a place of rest from all his enemies by God's doing. It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around about, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David's expression to Nathan, the prophet, was concerning the house of God. He was so appreciative of what God had done for him that he fell humbled and God was out there in a curtain tent. And yet, Nathan affirms, says, do all that's in your heart. You're the king. I can't see anything wrong with it. Now, God only wants us to speak when he speaks because God later told Nathan to go back to David and tell him that he couldn't build him a house there are some times when we speak out of turn and and we should be quiet whenever we get ahead of God or whenever we speak in the place of God God doesn't like that and he'll let us know (laughs) as he let Nathan know and Nathan, the prophet, quote, quote, had to go back and eat some crow. Well, when God checks me on something, I, I can either repent from it and acknowledge it, or I can just shine it on and say, well, you know, I mean, I really wasn't wrong. It's was just that God directed me different, and I start watering it down. I have to be careful. Now, David would be denied his desire to build a house of God from verses 4 through 17. Even as God told Nathan that night to go back. God had a question for David when you get to verse 4 through 7. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Expressing that he had never dwelt in a house since the Exodus, but a tent. Nor had he ever asked, nor wondered why they hadn't built him a house. Where did this thought come from? What would give you the idea that I I need a place to dwell? (laughs) Now, it was a good intention. He was sincere. But... God doesn't need a place to dwell. In verses 8 and 9, he told David that he had taken him from the sheepfold, made him rule over his people, been with him, cut off all his enemies, made his name great. You see, the emphasis of the Bible is what God desires to do for you, not what you can do for God. The emphasis of the Bible is what God wants to do through you, so that he's working through you, and you're not just doing things to please him, or to appease him, or to win his favor but to yield to him that he might work through you. And so in verse 10 and 11, God declared that he would appoint a place for his people to rest, and no longer would they be moved around, and God would build David, a royal dynasty. So here is David's idea of building and God turns it around. In verses 12 through 17, God declared this to David, that it would take place after David's death, through his son, of course, who was Solomon. That's who he would do it through. In verse 12, one of his own sons would sit on the throne. And God would establish his kingdom through the man Solomon. In verse 13, he would be the one to build God's house. David would be denied. Verse 14 and 15, he would chasten this heir for his iniquity as a son. But his mercy would not depart from him, nor remove the kingdom from him. As he had done with Saul, it was an everlasting covenant he was making here, because we know that it wasn't fulfilled totally in Solomon, but he was only the short-term fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment was Jesus Christ. His kingdom would be established forever, verses 16 and 17. The natural response is to get bent out of shape, right? Well, oh, I can't believe why God, I can't do this. What? Look at David's response. David was a grateful servant, verses 18 through 29. David was taken back by the revelation, verses 18 through 21. In verses 18 through 19, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He just sat down and considered that He was not worthy of this house to be brought thus far and recognized that it was not after the manner of men. This is not the way men deal with men. Recognizing that God is different and apart and separate from men. He was fully aware that God knew him completely and knew he was not perfect. For what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. Verse 21. Here he was confessing that God had done and did all according to his word and heart desire by revealing them to David. No one forces God to act, no one's pressured. God is not doesn't feel indebted to anybody. He does what he wills according to the desire of his heart, and then he reveals it to his servants. Notice David isn't pouting. Though he's denied of not building, he is in awe that God would build him a house. David praises and glorifies God in verses 22 through 29. In verse 22, he declares the uniqueness of God, none like him. In verses 23 and 24, he declared the uniqueness of Israel, whom he redeemed for himself forever. And he their God. No other nation had he done that to. He declared his affirmation of God's revelation that he, his name, be magnified forever. Then in verse 27, he declared this was a prayer from his heart. In view of God's revelation to him regarding the establishment of his kingdom. You see, it's God who initiates and we respond always. (laughs) It was in gratefulness and appreciation and awe of what God promised to do for him. In verse 28 and 29, he declared that the Lord was good in his word, true, implying that the revelation was inspired, therefore inerrant, infallible, and reliable, bringing about the certainty of his promise. If God has promised, he will fulfill it. I may not always understand how he'll do it. I may not always understand when he will do it. But if he has promised, he will act because he cannot lie. Now notice, thirdly, when you get to chapter 8 there, Verses 1 through 18, David was a good warrior and administrator in his rule. David defeated his enemies, and we're just going to run through this. He's been placed on the throne in verse 1, he defeated the Philistines, verse 2, the Moabites, and they became servants of David. In verse 3 and 4, the king of Zobah recovering his territory at the river Euphrates, taking much spoil. And then the Syrians from Damascus attempted to help King Zobah in verses 5 through 6. But David killed 22,000, put a garrison in Syria of Damascus, and they became his servants who brought tribute to him. And so in verses 7 through 12, David took up the spoils and the gifts sent from King Hamanath by the hand of his son Joram for defeating the king there and dedicated all of them to the Lord without any doubt, for the building of the temple. The temple which he was denied to build, now he was making provisions for it. Mm -hmm. Notice David's attitude. He's not only a a grateful servant, but he's a good administrator. He's a good steward. He handles things right. Now, he's denied to do something, but yet he's part of it. And rather than pouting, he rejoices in the part that he has. Such simple lessons in life. Sometimes we're going to be denied by God... Many different things. What are we gonna do? We're gonna pout or we're gonna say, Lord, I thank you that I can do this other thing. Lord, I thank you that you redirected me, because this is the best thing for me, this is the best thing for your kingdom. Too many people end up bitter and sorrowful and regretful because they don't get their way. And yet God does not say this to do our will, but to do his will. We are the errand voice. He's the master. Somehow we've got it turned around today in the church. And so David made a name for himself, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went, verses 13 and 14. Notice it was God. He knew how to fight the battles. He depended on God for all of this. It was God who made him great. Our battles are no different in the spirit, are they? And when we're victorious, we know it's because we're yielding and obeying to God, and when we're wiped out, it's because we think we can do it on our own. I have found that the greatest failures are always usually after our greatest victories. Because we get puffed up and we think we can handle it. We've learned the pattern. We've got it down, and we'll go out by ourselves and we get wiped out. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, Paul says. And he points to the wilderness experience. Now notice from verse 15 to 18. David administered his kingdom. He was the head. King of Israel in verse 15 there. Also, in verse 15, he administered judgment and justice to all the people. Verse 16, he had a commanding general over his army, Joab. He had a recorder, Jehoshaphat. The chronicles and activities and battles were recorded for accountability. Verse 17, he had Zadok and Abiathar as priests to intercede and seek the mind of God. Still, verse 17, he had Zariah the scribe to teach and to oversee the word of God. He had Benaniah over the Cherethites, who were the executioners, a group of foreign mercenary soldiers serving as bodyguards for King David. And the Pelethites, the couriers or collective names for the guardsmen of David. Good administration is so important. You cannot do everything, nor can I. So we administer certain things for others to do. In the church, it's so important. The reason I can study and pray and teach you is because God has raised other people to do different things. Not that I cannot do any of the other things. It's that God has raised it up. The same thing in your own life. You can't do everything at home. You administrate it down to your children, to other people, whatever it may be, so that you can do the most more important things. It's part of the secrets of life. You cannot do everything yourself. People try. They get all burned out. They get overwhelmed. Listen to this. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing. To wonder at nothing that is done to me. To feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. That's very, very possible in the Lord. David's rule was characterized by humble wisdom. You see it in his rulership. Secondly, David's rule was characterized by faithful compassion. First in chapter 9, David honored his covenant with Jonathan. He says, now David said, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to them, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul of whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is at the house of Micah, the son of Amiel, in lo, Debar. David inquires in verses 1 there, If any survivors of the house of Saul, his desire was to show kindness for Jonathan's sake, we see the servant in verse two, Ziba of the house of Saul, and the king comes to find out through his mouth that there is still one, but he's lame in his feet, King. A detail that was brought out not accidentally. And the other king would have said, "Oh, he's crippled. Oh man. Um, I don't know if I want him sitting at my table. I don't know if I want to keep the covenant now. When I made the covenant with Jonathan, I, I, I didn't know that his son was crippled. I didn't know he would be like a blemish to my kingdom. How interesting. His request regarding the location was revealed. In the house of Markar, verse 4, the son of Amiel from low Debar. Micah was Manasseh's oldest son. Joshua 17.1 tells us that. Lodibar was a town in Manasseh in Gilead, east of the Jordan. And it meant not a pasture. What a vivid picture of the life of Jonathan's son up to this point, crippled, alone, on the opposite side of the promised land. With no pasture. What a beautiful description and picture of each of us apart from Christ. His name was Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheths. And God saw us crippled and He took us on. He didn't say, oh, he's crippled. I don't want nothing to do with him. He said, bring him to my table. So in verses 5 through 8, David blesses Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. In verse 5, David sent and brought Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. And in verse 6, David saw Mephibosheth fall on his face before him in reverence and fear. Then notice that David then called his name Mephibosheth. To which he answered, Here is your servant. Now David knew that Mephibosheth feared hearing his death sentence. Which was the common practice of the day. Because what a king did... Is when he took over the throne of the other king, he would kill all of his heirs so there would be no uprising against him. He would kill the seed royal. Mephibosheth was fearing because he was afraid he was going to get the axe. David knew what was going through his mind. But notice in verse 7 David instead. Allowed the words of blessing to Paul upon his ears. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. The kindness that falls upon us is because of Jesus' sake, not our own. But a beautiful picture of Christ and his church through David's life at this point with him and Mephibosheth. Notice he would receive kindness. As a recipient of the covenant of David and Jonathan. He would restore all the land, it says of his grandfather Saul. He would have him eat at his table continually. Now notice the word kindness. It's a word in the Hebrew that is used many times, which means steadfast love. A constant or abiding mercy and favor. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, nearly always render it with the word in the Greek, ilios, which is mercy. The word is found 240 times in the Old Testament. The word is "hesed," steadfast love. Most frequently in the Psalms, 126 times. And it is used for God's covenant love for Israel, as well as His nature. You can find it in Exodus 34.6, Deuteronomy 7.9, Psalm 40.11, Hosea 2.19, just to mention a few of the 240 times. The word most commonly associated with it is the word fidelity or reliability. It's a love you can depend on, lean on, trust. One that's not going to betray you. One that is going to be faithful. One that is going to be true. This is the word. Notice in verse 8, he responded in admiration and gratefulness when he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? What an admirable trait of humility like his father before him. This is the awesome privilege and awesome accountability that we have as parents. That we are to be examples that our children might follow. Now, they may not follow it. But if they don't follow it, it better be because of their own choice, not because of our bad example. But he was like his father verses 9 through 13, David commanded Ziba and his sons to work the land of Mephibosheth and bring in the harvest. In verse 9, he declared his authority over the matter. I have given to your master all that belongs to Saul. In verse 10, he declared his authority over them. You shall work the land and in verse 11 he was acknowledged by Ziva and declared that Mephibosheth would eat at his table like one of the king's sons notice in verses 12 and 13 that he also cared for Mephibosheth's son Micah and he made Ziba's house served both of them and they ate continually at the king's table despite his lame feet. Both of them it wasn't just one and you can hear Mephibosheth coming to dinner dragging himself along at times Not very elegant, not very royal, but certainly welcomed. What a picture of us before Christ. His love is overwhelming.
0: Pastor Xavier Reese, drawing a vivid and tender picture of the love of the King of Kings, has for us the servants of his kingdom. Now you can hear this message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at CalvaryChapelPasadena.com. And what we've been listening to is another provoking message in our series and character study of David, and is simply titled, David Part 6. And there's much more to come next time. But if you'd like to receive a copy for more in-depth personal study at your own pace, we can provide that on CD for just $4 to help cover the costs. The title, once again, is David, Part 6. You can request your copy by writing, Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address, once again, is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please help us by including the call letters of this station somewhere in your correspondence. This is helpful when we check on the impact of this outreach in your area. And then we hope you'll be back for more Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, coming next time right here.